Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools, communities, and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. More than 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. We want to shine a light on how whiteness impacts education. To illuminate the assumptions that are used as a baseline from which everything is judged, because whiteness is what passes for normal. We want to confront those assumptions so that we can become consciously and intentionally anti-racists for all of our students. You are listening to Teaching While White. For this episode, we interviewed Tim Wise, a nationally recognized anti-racist essayist, author, and educator. We wanted to talk to Tim because his book, White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son, was one of the first of its kind when published in 2004 and made a big impression on both of us with his ability to take an unflinching look at how racism impacts everyone. So often, conversations around race revolve around individual people or acts. But Tim keeps the focus on the bigger picture and reveals a larger system of racism at work. What you are about to hear is a recording of a presentation Tim gave to a group of educators outside of Boston, interwoven with an interview Jenna did with him in Nashville. I started by asking Tim if he thought that American schools were designed to fail. Right. Well, I would not say that they're designed to fail. I think they're designed to succeed, but they're designed to succeed on terms that don't necessarily serve everyone. Right. So what we consider failure in the world of educational reform or educational theory is, oh, it's failure when we have massive inequality between, let's say, rich kids on the one hand, poor kids on the other, white kids on the one hand, kids of color on the other. Um And that's because to those of us who think in terms of what is success, we think success would be equality. But that's only true if you assume the system was set up for that, right? And if you look at the history of education, there's very little doubt that it was never intended to bring about equality. First of all, there was no public education system to speak of really until well after the Civil War. Um, And it was something that had to be imposed, frankly, uh, virtually at gunpoint in the South. Um, And certainly the idea of any kind of educational access for black and brown folks had to be imposed in that way. But really even working class whites weren't expected to get any kind of a you know, extensive, comprehensive education. They were, you know, intended to gain labor skills to go work for rich people. Because what I know right now is black folk, for instance, who have a college degree twice as likely as white folks with a degree to still be unemployed. So how the hell is education the great equalizer, see? Latinx folks with a college degree, 50% more likely than white folks with a degree to be unemployed. So how the hell is it an educational equalizer? Asian American and Pacific Islander folk with a degree, 20% more likely than white folks with a degree to be unemployed. So I'm not quite sure how it's an equalizer. Indigenous folk, two thirds more likely even with a college degree to be unemployed than white folks with a degree. So once again, I just need evidence if we're going to say this sweet, pretty stuff. Because I've been looking for it for a really long time, for like 30 years, can't find it. I'm assuming it just doesn't exist because education is not that thing. So if we want it to be that thing, we have to start stop lying to ourselves about this idea that the system was set up for everybody and we can just 
fix it with a little change here and a little change there and a really good intention here and some money here. We have to revolutionize this system, overturn it and start over again. Because if you're standing at the end of a conveyor belt at a sausage factory and you're, you're surprised and confused that it keeps giving you sausage, you're clearly not paying attention. You're sitting at the end of a conveyor belt at a damn factory, the sign said sausage. And you're down at the end of it like, when am I getting my chicken nuggets? Y'all did not read the sign, right? The sign tells you it is a sausage factory. Sausage is what it does. You should probably expect sausage. And we have an educational system that churns out, metaphorically speaking, sausage in an unequal fashion, not by accident, on purpose. But look, let me just prove it to you historically. It's not that hard. Right? We know the system was set up to be unequal because all the folks that were the leading educational theorists of their time, or some of them, were very open about it. Not all of them were, but some were. So Thomas Jefferson, for instance, right? Founder of the University of Virginia, one of white folks' favorite white folks. Right? Not mine, but some white folks, right? Uh, Thomas Jefferson, founder of the University of Virginia, was considered in his day to be a very forward-thinking educational theoretician. He was. He was very well respected in the 1700s for his theories on schooling. One of the things he wrote in notes on the state of Virginia was that what we needed in this country was like, I think he said six years, might've been three, can't remember, but it was like six years of compulsory education. And he only meant that for white folks. He didn't mean that for black folks, obviously. He didn't mean that for indigenous folks, obviously. He's just talking about white people. He said, we need six years of compulsory schooling so that we can, his words come in, not mine, his words, so that we can rake a few geniuses from the rubbish. Remember, he's only talking about white folks. So what he just said is most white folks are trash because that's what rubbish means. Most white folks are trash. Don't even like most of y'all. Definitely don't like the black folks. Definitely don't like the native folks. Don't even like most of y'all. Most of y'all are still trash, but a handful of y'all really smart and we're gonna give you six years of school, figure out who the geniuses are and to hell with the rest of you. That is somebody who is announcing to you that the purpose of school is not equity, but inequity. He's saying it. I'm not, he is. Purpose is not to be an equalizer, it's to be an unequalizer. Have a handful of folks running things, the rest of y'all work for us. Fast forward, Woodrow Wilson, before he became president of the United States, he was the president of what? Princeton University. And he was also a leading educational thinker at the time. Not quite on the level of Dewey, but up there, he was someone that folks turned to for what they thought was really progressive at the time, educational theory. And what did Woodrow Wilson say? Sort of similar to Jefferson, a little bit different the way he phrased it, but what Wilson said was what we needed was one group of people to prepare themselves for the receipt of a liberal education, that being the term that used to be used for college, right? One group of people to prepare themselves for the receipt of a liberal education and another group, much larger, he said, by necessity, in this and every other society to forego the privilege of a liberal education and prepare themselves for the performance of certain difficult manual tasks. Again, leading progressive educational thinker, y'all, saying the purpose of education is to find a handful of folk to run stuff and the rest of y'all, in Jefferson's terms, rubbish, in my terms, people that gotta do the hard manual work, the rest of y'all gonna work for us. In other words, schooling is about inequality, not by accident, very much on purpose. Fast forward, and we're now in 2001, or maybe 2002, 
The No Child Left Behind Act has become law. I'm watching one of the Sunday talk shows and William Bennett, former Secretary of Education, until recently the worst one in American history. <laughs> but you know, records are meant to be broken, so somebody's always coming for your prize and Bennett has been knocked from his perch, but he's still up there. He was also the drug czar. I didn't do a real good job with that one either, but uh, Bill Bennett was on one of the Sunday shows. And they asked him a question. They said, what do you think, as the former Secretary of Education, what do you think is the biggest problem in American education today? Now, that's a really like, weighty question, right? That's, like, that's a hard one. Like, if somebody were to ask me that, even on national TV, which rewards quick answers, right? I think I'd almost be like, can we go to break for a minute? Because I need to give that like two minutes of thought at least because I didn't know you were going to ask me that shit when I walked into the studio, but thank you anyway. I just need a couple of minutes to gather my thoughts because I don't want to get that one wrong. That seems like a big one. Bill Bennett didn't need two minutes. Bill Bennett didn't need 20 seconds. Bill Bennett got the question. He had the answer ready. Here's what he said. Remember the question, what is the biggest problem facing American education today? Bill Bennett, former Secretary of Education's answer is... Too many people are going to college. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Um, I was in an ecumenical mood that day. Hard to believe. <laughs> you know, it was early. I hadn't even had coffee. I was in an ecumenical mood that day, so when he said that, I almost wanted to cut him some slack. I'm not in the business of cutting slack to Bill Bennett or people like him, but I was going to give him the benefit of the doubt. For a second, I thought to myself, maybe he didn't complete his sentence. You know how that shit happens sometimes. You're talking and things catch, like right here in your throat. You had more to say, but then like the saliva gets all caught up in your mouth and then you're like, hold on, you got to take a sip of water. I thought maybe he was going to grab for the water cup that they had for him there on the set and he was going to be like, hold on just a minute. You know, I just need to, I just need to clear my throat just a minute. Hold on just one time. And then he was going to come back and say, too many people going to college dot, dot, dot who can't afford it because that would be a real problem, or maybe too many people going to college dot, 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 who aren't really prepared for it because we haven't adequately resourced K-12. Okay, I'd be down with that. That would be a good answer. Yeah, no, there was no internal ellipses in uh, Bill Bennett's comment. There was no comma, no semicolon, no M dash, nothing. It was just a period at the end of the sentence, right? Too many people going to college. And I'm waiting for the host to ask a question like, well, who, who, who are these people? Who are the too many? Because see, that seems to be the obvious follow-up. Who's going that ought not be going? He didn't say, but I know who he means. Or more to the point, I know who he doesn't mean. Keep in mind, at that particular point, the president of the United States was somebody who had gotten C's all the way through prep school, but managed to get into Yale any damn way, got C's all the way through Yale, managed to get into Harvard Business any damn way, went back to Yale after being president of the United States and bragged at the graduation ceremony to the graduates that you could be a C student at Yale and still become president of the United States. My guess is that Bill Bennett was not talking about the rich and mediocre children of rich and mediocre families that can't even manage a B minus in college. Bill Bennett was not saying that the rich and mediocre ought not go to college. No, 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 no. We know they're going to go to college. Even though he didn't say it, Bill Bennett was saying the people who were going who ought not be going, you know who they are. They're working class and they're lower income and they're people of color gaining access in ways that prior generations had not. He didn't have to say it. We all know that's who he meant. So... We talked about freedom, literacy for freedom and freedom for literacy. And 
Um, I wonder how you would define or talk about education for liberation, what that means to you and what would that look like? I mean, I think education for liberation is about having an educational system, the purpose of which is to positively impact the larger society in which we li- in which we live and create greater equity there. I think the problem is we sometimes think of education in a vacuum. So education is even even among liberal and progressive educators is about providing like the least painful experience in the 12 to 13 years K through through graduation that we spend. So it's about making it more enjoyable, yes, it's about helping you learn things, it's about empowerment. But again, is it really about creating – and sometimes people will say oh, it's about creating citizens, not necessarily in the legal sense, right, but in this sort of larger holistic sense. And all that is true, but citizens for what purpose? Like what are we What are we talking about? Are we talking about creating citizens who understand the system as it is and aren't really encouraged to question that? Are we talking about creating citizens who see an obligation to make change where change needs to be made? And I think very rarely do we do it like that. Very rarely is it the latter. And so I think education for liberation means that education has to become about, as those freedom schools were in Mississippi in 1964, fundamentally upending systems of structural inequality and oppression, whether that's about race, class, gender, sexuality, a combination of all those things, it means that we're wanting to turn people out of those schools and whether they go into higher education or whether they go into the workforce or whatever it is they do, uh, whether they start raising families, that they are questioning fundamentally the assumptions um, of the system within which they live, including the school systems within which they live, that they are asking those kinds of critical questions, that they are learning so education for liberation to me is is about a pedagogical approach, a content approach that places students at the center of the experience that that allows them to co-create the curriculum based on the things that they know that they need to know. Um, and it's about taking these concepts that they do need to understand, math concepts, science concepts, and making them relevant to the everyday lives that they lead. But I'm a little worried as we focus so much on STEM that we're forgetting some other areas that are important for creating citizens. I don't mean in the legal sense, right? I just mean in the philosophical sense. We don't need just STEM, we need MESH education, M-E-S-H, what is M? Media literacy, what is E? Ethics, what is S? Sociology, what is H? History, right? Because if I don't understand media literacy, I get played by the media every single day. I don't know truth from fiction. If I don't understand ethics, I don't know how to assess public policy. I don't, how to, uh, don't know how to assess philosophically the ethical or unethical behavior of leaders of our country. If I don't understand sociology, I don't understand the way that group dynamics play out in our society, whether it's on the basis of race or gender, sexuality, class. If I don't understand history, I don't understand anything, and we clearly don't. Because if we understood history, we wouldn't have a presidential candidate now president running around with a slogan like Make America Great Again, which is a purely ahistorical slogan that one can only rock if you've never actually studied the history of the country. Because the country was never great, at least not for people of color, not for poor folks of any color, not for LGBTQ folk, not for women as women, not for people who were anything but Christian. But we don't have enough history to understand that. If we actually understood history, we wouldn't be caging children at the border because we would understand that we were them and they are us. Those of us from Europe, we forget, see, that we were the losers of our mother continent, right? We like to lie about that, 
right? We like to get on ancestry. <laughs> Looking for kings and queens and shit. Ain't nobody on Ancestry looking for peasants. You're not on there waiting for that leaf to turn so you can find some other person who nobody ever wrote about before. That's not what you're looking for. Let's just tell the truth. We are on there looking for important people who we can find on Wikipedia. That's what we do, right? Because we think that somehow that makes us more noble, right? So we start looking for these kind of connections, forgetting that our families are here precisely because they were the losers, the winners didn't get on the boat, y'all. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm just saying like the winners never leave where they're at. Why would you leave if you were winning? That would be stupid, right? That's like when folks brag about coming over on the Mayflower. All right, shh, precious, you might not want to brag. Like, do you know who was actually on that ship? Do you know who was on all those other early ships? I'll tell you who wasn't, the king. The king was not on that ship, right? Nobody the king particularly wanted to keep around in England was on that boat. Like they pretty much were the losers. They were the convicts. They were the desperate. They were the people that couldn't make it in England. There's no shame in that. But the shame is when you forget that that's who you were, it becomes easier to look down on the newcomers who were the losers, quote unquote, of their respective societies and not see yourself in them and not see them in you. See? Becomes easier to allow a president to refer to certain places as shithole countries as if he clearly has never read Dickens. Right? Dickens wasn't writing about Africa. <laughs> Dickens, Dickens wasn't writing about what we now call Latin America. That was some white folks, right, in these really desperate, horrible, awful places, right? But we don't challenge that reality. We don't challenge the mentality that comes from being a member of the dominant group. First and foremost, that notion of meritocracy and rugged individualism. Kids can handle the truth. We just have to be prepared to challenge them without worrying about what their parents are gonna say, without worrying about what the society's gonna say. We owe it to these young people. And I'll tell you what, even young people from privileged backgrounds appreciate truth. They don't like being lied to any more than, and they, all kids know they're being lied to. Every child knows that we're lying to them. It's just a question of whether we're gonna admit it. And once we admit it, their whole attitude toward schooling changes, their whole attitude toward history changes. You ask most kids in college, what was your least favorite class in high school? You know what they say, they say history. Why do you think that? Now, I wouldn't have said that because I was a history geek. But most kids will say that it's because of the way we teach it. It's not because there's something inherently boring or awful about history as a subject, but we teach it as these disconnected names and dates and places and battles and, you know, give me one sentence on the Articles of Confederation for the exam. Okay, here it is, you know. What happened in this date? Well, okay, here's, you know, what does this mean? You know, what was the, what was the New Deal? Okay, well, but that doesn't actually connect any of that to the present day. We don't teach history thematically. If we did, right, then young people could see that what goes around really does come around and that certain cycles of history repeat and certain themes keep coming up again. If you treat history like a CSI investigation, right, because it is a crime scene, you understand. If you treat American history like a CSI investigation and you have young people go out and discover truth for themselves, Right? And interview the people who've lived through some of these histories that we like to talk about, but we don't want to really research. And you actually have them collect information, do forensic history, right? In the places where you educate, wherever that is, find out whose land that was. Find out what happened to the people who were there. How did they end up not there any longer? Or why is it that this part of town looks like this and this part of town looks like that? That's, that's educational work, that's homework work, that's research.
I wonder if you could talk about higher ed a little bit. I just yeah. wonder what you're seeing yeah. out there. Um, I think the problem with higher ed is similar to that in K-12, and that is we're still not asking the fundamental questions, what is the purpose of this thing, right? So just like we're not asking why, what are we educating kids for in K-12, we're not really asking what is the purpose of higher education. And right now this is a big debate because you have people within the halls of power, both parties I should point out, who seem to be of the opinion that the purpose of higher education is to help you make a really good living. And so they want to actually tie funding, right, to graduation rates, to future earnings. Like, what does that mean? It means every they want everybody to be an engineer, I gather, or a lawyer or a doctor. Well, we certainly need engineers. We certainly need lawyers and doctors, I suppose. Um, but what that means is if you're in liberal arts, if you, you know, even though the, the research says – that employers actually love art history majors. Like they're actually, you know, they might not be doing art history on the job, but there's a certain fluency that you get and a certain communication skill set that you get that actually does translate in the workforce. But it's hard to make people understand that, right? It's hard to get people to understand that actually, you know, you don't have to have this practical education of engineering, uh, basically trade school level education to go and work and make a living and support a family. But that's what we're acting as though higher ed is for rather than what interestingly, a hundred years ago when higher ed was clearly for white men only and, and wealthy white men at that for the most part. You know, it's funny. They used to talk about higher ed in those days as the life of the mind. And this is why you could go to Harvard as a white male or Yale, get a gentleman C, do nothing, right? But but you were learning how to read poetry and you were learning – and of course, it didn't matter because you were going to get set up after you graduated uh, to, to run things. But it was interesting that higher ed, it was understood like it was supposed to be this leisurely pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake. And I find it interesting that it's at the moment where – Higher ed is becoming at least marginally less elite, still far too elite, but it's not just white men and it's not just white people and it's not just affluent people. And all of a sudden it's like, well, this shit is not practical anymore. Well, we don't, we can't have these brown people <laughs> contemplating, you know, uh, poetry. Jesus, we got to have them cleaning stuff and working and, and building things. And, you know, and, and so it is interesting to me that we've, that we've narrowed the scope of what higher ed ought to be at the very moment that we broaden the scope of who theoretically can attend. So we need to deal with that. And we need to think about um, what kind of society we're trying to create when we uh, uh, either expand access or limit it. Because, of course, there's still an ongoing effort to limit access, to attack affirmative action programs, to uh, cut back on student loans. So you're having to go greater and greater into debt. That's, of course, making it a lot harder for working class folks to go. And again, is it a coincidence that we start cutting back on state aid to higher ed at that moment that brown folk start coming in more. I mean, you know, California, for instance, used to be the the highest per pupil funding in higher ed in the country back in the 70s and in the early 80s. Uh, and uh, one, not, not, not first, actually, I think they were number seven, but they were in the top seven or eight. Uh, and now they're like 42nd, right? Because what they did during that period was they start chopping higher ed funding, chopping higher ed funding, putting a lot of that money into prison construction. Um, and that's, of course, at the very moment that California is becoming less white more brown. I find it hard to think that that's a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that they're building prisons based on reading rates in third grade in California. Well, in a lot of states, right, they'll look at they'll look at third grade reading, particularly for black students in in particular, and they will say 
uh, we need X number of cells 15 years later because in eighth grade, you're what, like eight. So um, so they're saying, you know, by the time you're 23, we know based on these scores. So really what they're saying is um, you're eight. We got you for 10 more years, roughly, but we can't do anything with you. So because we know we can't do anything with you in 10 years, we're going to have you. Um we just need to go ahead and get you a cell and get it spiffy and cleaned up and ready to go because we know that's where you're going to be. And, and, and so that's why I say, you know, that the purpose of education is clearly not equity. If the purpose of education were equity, we would be saying, holy crap, like all that money that we're going to build these cells with, we could take that money and plug that in to actually dealing with this. We got 10 years to get it right with this kid who's eight right now, but no, screw it. You know, and it's because the purpose of schooling isn't to prepare those children. It's to, it's to destroy them. And I, and I want to be clear. I, that's not a, like conspiracy minded thinking on my part. I, I always feel the need to point that out because I think some people hear that and they go, oh, that's like a conspiracy theory. It's not. It's what sociologists call functionalism, right? It's just this idea that things work the way they work because they work for certain people, right? That's what functionalist theory is. The reason we have standardized testing is not because there are people like Oz behind the curtain who are going, ha ha, I can screw black people this way or I can screw poor people this way. It's because that shit works for rich people, right? It works for the dominant group. And so if it works for them, they're going to keep it. They're not even necessarily thinking about what it does to others. It's just like this is this standardized test correspond with zip code. Cool. We'll keep that. You know, and um, it doesn't require active conspiracy. It just if it didn't work, like if standardized tests started not working for rich people, that would stop like it would go away. Right. Um, And the same is true with budget decisions and everything else. Driving around with my girls one day um, when they were 12 and 10, they uh, were going they're dancers. And so we were headed from the school they attend to the dance studio where they were in company. And it's about an eight minute drive from the school to the studio. And on that drive, every day we make it, you have to drive through public housing in Nashville. And we got stopped at a red light. We've been stopped there before, but this particular day was the first day that my 10-year-old Rachel ever noticed the neighborhood and sort of looked around, right? We're stopped at the light. She's in the back seat. She says, uh, Dad, why is this neighborhood pretty much all black? I thought, well, now that's a hell of a good question. Right? I mean, I was, I was sort of geeked because I figured like, my 10-year-old is doing urban anthropology in the back of my Highlander. It's good stuff, right? I was sort of excited, but really I was excited because that is like the one question my kid could ask me that I actually know the answer to, right? And when you're a parent, you will take your victories wherever the hell you can find them because sometimes your kids will ask you things you don't have a clue. My kid could have said, where does electricity come from? I'd have been like, Psh, aren't you studying that? You got a phone, Google it. Or the thing that parents always say when we don't have the answer, but we don't want our kids to know that we don't know, we say, I don't know, what do you think? You do know that that is the universal parental sign for I don't have a damn clue. But maybe if you tell me, we can both learn together. That's what we're really saying. So if they had asked me about anything but that, that might've been the road that I had to go down. But they asked me, how did this neighborhood come to look this way racially? Daddy has that. That's the one thing daddy knows. So I was all excited because I was getting ready to bust out my wisdom in front of my children. Again, you will take your victories where you can find them. I had the answer right here in my throat. Now I knew it had to be a short answer because we only had four minutes left to get from where we were to the studio. So I could not give them the PhD answer. A, I do not have a PhD. B, we only had four minutes. And C, they were 10 and 12 and can only handle so much. But I had my four minute 10 and 12 year old speech ready. The question, remember, why did this neighborhood look so black? 
or why is this neighborhood so black? I'm ready with the answer. The 12-year-old butts in and says, redlining. I was like, what the hell was that? What? Like, are you just, do you just know things? Like, (laughs) did your mother give birth to a sociological savant? The hell was that? Right? And the 10-year-old said, I don't really know what that means. I said, I don't think your sister does either. But that was a hell of a good guess. Now, actually, let me just step in. I hate to, you know, burst the bubble. That's not actually the answer as to how the neighborhood got black. It is the answer to how it got poor. And I'm going to give her partial credit because she was 12, y'all. I'm going to give her partial credit. She knew a term, didn't quite apply it directly, but it was close. It was close. And so then I had four minutes to explain. I said, well, let's just break this down. I said, first of all, just so you know, public housing was not created for black people. It was created for white people. In fact, black and brown folks were excluded for the first several years of its existence. Around the same time, however, the government also created additional housing programs for white folks like the FHA loan, later the VA loan, later GI Bill benefits, which in theory were open to everyone, but actually were only really available to white folks. It allowed whites to leave the cities and the public housing that they had had access to and to move to the suburbs where only they could live because black and brown folks were not allowed to live there. So by the time I sort of go through that little history, it's not real hard to break down. Even for a 10 or 12 year old, we got to the studio, I dropped them off, I said, does that make sense? And they were appropriately horrified. So I felt I had done my job. I pulled away, I feel pretty good about myself as an educator. And then the horror washed over me. I realized, what happens if I don't know the answer to their question? And how many white parents and how many white teachers wouldn't know the answer to their question? See, black and brown folks tend to know the answer because they've lived the history. But most of us who are white have never really had to know that. So if you haven't had to know it, you probably won't know it. It's not a reflection on you. It's got nothing to do with you. It's just you don't know things if you don't have to know them. It's like me. I'm oblivious to a lot of stuff. I'm oblivious to calculus, y'all, because I never took it, right? Never took it because they didn't make me in the city of Nashville. And I was like, well, hey, if you're not going to make me take it, I sure as shit am not going to volunteer. Why would I do that? No offense to those of you that teach calculus, love calculus, do calculus. I'm glad somebody does it. I just knew it was not going to be this guy, right? So I didn't do it. So as a result, if I were to stand up and try to do calculus, y'all be like, he does not know what the hell he's talking about. Exactly. But in this country, white folks sometimes think we know when racism is happening better than people of color. And we never took the class. You see where I'm going with this. Men act like sexism isn't happening. Rape culture is not a thing. And we never had to take the class. Straight and cisgendered folk act like transphobia and straight supremacy are not real. And we never had to take the class. We got rich folks think they know poverty better than poor folks know it. They never had to take the class. I guess my point is that we have to start listening to the marginalized and challenging everyone who isn't. And part of challenging them is challenging the mentalities they've grown up with because if I, as a parent, don't know how to answer my kid's question, what is my child gonna do? Is she gonna stop asking it? Is she gonna stop, even if only to herself, right? Is she gonna stop wondering? No, she's gonna keep wondering and she's gonna fill in the blanks with her own answer. And the only answer she has available to her is the one the culture gives her, which is wherever you end up is all about your own effort. If you didn't make it, it's because you didn't try hard enough. So if these folks are living over here and living like this, they must have done something wrong and they must not as be, as, be as good as the people who live over there and live like that, see? So classism and racism, and we could extend that to sexism, they become the default positions of people who are not challenged to interrogate their reality. It's about ratifying the reality of those at the bottom, challenging the reality of those at the top, and challenging our own reality. And there are a lot of ways to do that as educators, right? One of the things we as teachers, whether it's in a classroom or in a broader sense, have to do is drop that veil of objectivity that we 
cover ourselves with, like a cloak, right? To not have to really get down and dirty into these conversations. Part of the problem is we don't want to even acknowledge how we got where we are. And that's the other thing, right, is that there's so much blame put on individual teachers, right? We have salaries based on test scores, but nobody's talking about systems or looking at systems. Yeah. And is that intentional? Well, yeah. I mean, I think if we get – first of all, we have a hyper-individualistic culture. So we tend to look at any failure um, of of education or – uh, uh, we think about this in policing, same thing, right? If, if, if we see disproportionate use of force against people of color, we want to put it on the few bad apples, right? We want to individualize the blame. And of course, there are cops who need to be removed, just like there are teachers who need to be removed um, from their positions. And sometimes for the very same reason, right? But clearly, if all we look at are the individual, you know, bad cops or the individual bad teachers, however we define bad in the educational realm, uh, we're missing the system and the structure. So if you have a system of schooling that essentially um, encourages teachers to look only at the bottom line of these test scores, encourages them to teach to the test, forces their rewards to be on the basis of that, then we ought not be surprised when they do exactly that and when things don't actually get better because teaching to the test doesn't produce learning, it doesn't produce joy in learning, it doesn't excite students to want to learn, it doesn't even excite them to want to attend, let alone to pay pay attention. And so if I I look at it and I say, this is ridiculous, this has nothing to do with anything, then I'm not going to I'm going to have a very different attitude about it. I'm not going to look at it as something that's important knowledge. And so blaming individual teachers for the way the system is set up and the way that students logically respond to that system uh, is to miss the bigger picture. And, and, and that is that as long as we're setting teachers up to fail, uh, or really, as I said at the outset, to succeed, unless you change how we staff those schools um, and and what we're teaching teachers to do when they get into those schools, then nothing's going to change. If 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 our certification programs, be they traditional or alternative certification programs, are rooted in the same stuff they've always been rooted in with a little bit of multicultural ed thrown in. Right. I mean, One you know, class. right. I mean, here we are. We're in Nashville and, and uh, you know, Peabody is usually vying for one or two behind Teachers College at Columbia for the quote-unquote best ed school in America. But you look at the curriculum at Peabody. It's a, it's a wonderful institution. I know some people there that are doing some really good stuff, but their classes where they talk about this stuff are usually not required, or it might be one unit that you take. Um, so you can get a little multicultural ed, You can get, a, but you're not get, it's not required the way that a lot of other things are required at most ed schools. And it's certainly not required in alternative certification programs. It's certainly not what Teach for America is teaching people with five weeks of training and they don't know anything about the people or communities that they're going into and they're not learning about racism and, and, and institutional inequality. So unless we're changing how we feed teachers and principals into the schools, it doesn't matter whether those schools are economically integrated, racially integrated, or isolated. They've got to have liberatory educators in the building um, and involve the community in that, or it's not going to make any difference. What if we started out, and I'm talking in middle schools, I'm talking elementary, this is not to wait till high school. We're, in fact, we're highly problematic when we wait that long. This stuff has to start quite a bit earlier. But what if we spent the first week or two weeks of school talking about the way that science has been used against certain populations? Right. If we understood that science, if you don't learn science and learn it better than other people, they will use it against you. That's the history of science. It's not objective. 
It's highly subjective. It's been used to justify sterilization of hundreds of thousands of women of color in this country and poor white women through the, throughout the 20th century. It was used to justify all kinds of horrific experiments on enslaved women. It was used to justify eugenic population control policies, which the Nazis copied from us, right? Science being used against certain populations deemed inferior. Now, if I'm a person of color and you tell me that, don't tell me that I need to study science so I can get a job in a lab somewhere, right? Don't tell me I need to study science because STEM is really important and I can make a lot of money. Tell me that if I don't understand science, folks are coming for me and mine, and I promise you the mentality will be different. There was a teacher in, outside of Denver, Colorado, or at suburb of Denver, Cherry Creek, who found this out several years ago, right? He was teaching a, like a ninth grade group, standard math, mostly kids of color, Cherry Creek, you know, relatively affluent area, but there's still some working class folks and there are people of color there in that school, even though it's, I think, still mostly white probably. But anyway, these kids were struggling. They weren't doing well. They were failing the class, but he knew they were bright. He knew these young black men in the class, for instance, were bright. He knew they were smart, but they weren't doing well. They were disengaged. They were slacked out in the chair. They're listening to music. One day he goes in, puts on the whiteboard or the chalkboard, all these facts and figures and numbers and data and charts and graphs, doesn't tell them what it is. 15 minutes later, they're all antsy. They're like, is this going to be on the test? He says, no, no, this is just evidence that somebody's trying to kill you. And they were like, what are you talking about? And then he goes and explains what it is. He says, well, this is the relative rates of home ownership in the greater Denver area for white families versus Latinx versus black families. This is the rate of stop and frisk, incarceration, war on drug data, wealth inequality data, income disparity data, high school graduation rate data, da 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 It's the algebra of inequality. And then he looks at them and he says, now, do you want to blow these numbers up or do you want to become one of them? Because folks are ready for you to be one of them and I'm down to do whatever you want to do. Right? And all of a sudden, math took on social purpose. Understanding numbers became more than just meeting a state standard. Understanding numbers became a way to get free from becoming a number. And so these kids that were getting Ds and Fs all of a sudden got a fire lit under their ass. They started studying. They set up a group called the Brotherhood, which was this like math tutoring posse that would work with like eighth grade black kids to make sure they understood the importance of math. Right? And the school board was freaked out. They're like, what's the Brotherhood? What's that? thought it was some kind of math gang. What is that? Right? But these kids started getting A's and B's. Why? Not because the white teacher had told them something they didn't know. Those kids knew there were folks out to get them. That, those folks knew, those kids knew the system was stacked against them. What they needed was a person in authority to ratify that for them and to look them in the eye and say, yes, it is real. It is happening. Now let's go to work. Right? If we view education in that way and we change the paradigm, we understand where we came from, then we can figure out where we're going. If we don't, we are lost. And so it's time not only to make this country great, not again, but for the first time, but to make our schools and our educational system great, not again, but for the first time. And I appreciate all y'all's work in trying to make that happen. Thank you so much for being here and I appreciate you. There's a lot of reasons to be upset in the world right now. I just wondered if you could talk about why we should feel hopeful right now. Mm. For social movements and creating social justice, whether it's in schools or any other part of, of society, we got to do more than hope. Hope gives away agency. Hope is what you do when you can't do anything else, right? Um, and when you can do other stuff and all you're doing is hoping, that's a problem. So I, I worry about, like back during the Obama administration, you know, the, whole, the whole slogan of hope and change. Well, hope didn't always bring about change. You got to have action to bring about change. And um, 
And sometimes we get so caught up in the hopefulness of the moment or the excitement of the moment. You know, a lot of people in 1968 thought the revolution was right around the corner and had a lot of hope for that. Didn't happen um, because systems and structures are a lot deeper than we think. So what gives me not hope but encouragement is that I know that people have overcome bigger monsters than we face right now. You know, right after the election, I went to D.C. and I was at the uh, Museum of African-American History and Culture, which had only opened, you know, a few months earlier or whatnot. And walking through that museum, right, you see the monsters slain previously by black and brown peoples and their white allies. And they were scarier, you know, Bull Connor and Jim Clark and Lester Maddox, and even you know Thomas Jefferson, who we don't think of as a monster, but when you understand his history, we understand the complexities. We understand that he did monstrous things and was involved in a monstrous system of enslavement, even as he preached the notion of equality and opportunity for all. And they were laid low by people fighting for justice. If those folks could be brought down, and, and, and not entirely because the systems they constructed are still with us, but if they could be at least... Uh, in some sense defeated, then I'm fairly confident that Donald Trump is not the monster who can't be slain, metaphorically speaking, so the Secret Service doesn't show up at my door, um, <laughs> by committed people. Uh, you know, So if, if, if bigger than he have been laid low, this too will pass. The question becomes, though, what do we replace it with? And if we just keep moving from crisis to crisis and bad leader to bad leader, you know, many of us thought when Reagan was president, my God, it can't get any worse than this for people of color and low income folks. And then when George W. Bush, you know, bungled Katrina in the way that he did, it was just like, oh, my God, can you believe? And, you know, but the reality is, you know, shit can always get worse. And the idea that it can't um, is, is a conceit that we can't afford. And, 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 and that needs to be heard not just by, you know, um, people on the right who aren't going to pay attention to it, people on the left who think like, oh, it doesn't really matter who wins. It doesn't matter who becomes president. It doesn't matter who controls Congress. They're all horrible. Well, yeah, that I understand that. And I can sympathize with that approach. I also realize that if you think it can't get worse, you are probably not at the bottom. Things can always get worse. We have an obligation, however, regardless of who's there to continue doing the work. And I see people doing the work every day. I see young people enthusiastic and engaged in ways that they were not uh, 10 years ago and, 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 and 15 and 20 years ago. I don't know what will come of that. I hope a lot will, but again, I have no control. And so um, all that we can do is try to encourage that organizing, encourage that enthusiasm, provide space for that enthusiasm, uh, help empower the voices of those young people who are taking the lead on so many issues, especially young people of color around the country, um, and, and uh, put our money and our voices behind that knowing that there's every possibility that, you know, we won't win. And, and we need to be realistic about the possibility that we won't win. The question, however, that we need to be asking ourselves is, what are we here for? You know, we live on this earth for a, a very limited amount of time. And whether you live to be 100, or you live to be 80, or you live to be 50, or you don't even make it that far, you, you have to figure out at some point um, what you intend to do on this earth and, and what you intend to do to justify all the resources that you took up. And I, I would contend that there are, you know, not much that you could do. There's a lot, lot worse that you could do than spend that time trying to figure out how to make the world a better place than it was when you came in. And even if you don't succeed, you're not relieved from the obligation to try. You know, Derek Bell, the late Derek Bell law professor at NYU and Harvard before that, um, said, 
very clearly in Faces at the Bottom of the Well, which he wrote in the early 90s, that he thought racism, for instance, was in all likelihood a permanent feature of American life, never to be fully undone. But he never stopped fighting it. It wasn't like he said that and then threw up his hands and said, screw it. Why are we even trying? Because he also said in another book called Confronting Authority that, um, uh, that there was redemption and struggle and that the struggle for justice itself is redeeming. And so we have to do the work regardless of what the outcome is going to be uh, as a way to justify our time here, uh, as a way to, to uh, try to leave something to our children and grandchildren. If we're lucky enough to have them, it'll be better than what we were, we were left. So we are left with the question, what if the education system isn't failing? What if it's doing exactly what it was designed to do? How do we even begin to dismantle it? I think partially we wanted to do this episode because we need to expose and see the system for what it really is. Because if we're still arguing about what the reality is, it distracts us from the real conversation of what are we going to do about it. Yeah, so we end up demonizing teachers instead of seeing that the system was rigged from the beginning. I like what Tim said about putting our energy and money into young people, especially activists of color. Yes, and that there are worse things to spend our time doing than trying to make the world a better place. Always more to uncover. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please spread the word. The episode was sponsored by East Ed. Our story editor is Kate Ellis, and our sound editor is Jay Stewart Pheasant. Our theme song and music was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Jenna Chandler Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi, and this is Teaching While White. Thank you.